0: Doctor, a new podcast dedicated to showcasing the experiences of Black doctoral students in the UK. I'm Nina, your host. I am a PhD student in psychology at the University of Bath. And today I have with me Louisa Brotherson, who is studying for a PhD in earth sciences at the University of Liverpool.
1: Hi, Louisa. It's great to have you with me today. Hi, Nina. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) You're very welcome.
0: To get us started, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and the subject of your PhD?
1: Yeah, so thanks for the intro as well. So yeah, I'm Louisa. I am a third year PhD student now at the University of Liverpool, so it's getting to the nitty gritty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, like you said, I'm an earth scientist, uh, specifically a geophysicist. So my background is like using different elements of physics to study our planet and study earth. In particular, I'm focusing on earthquakes. So I want to get a better understanding about how earthquakes work um, because we still don't know like how they work on a small scale because we don't have like a, a massive drill. We can't like drill to the centre of the earth while an earthquake's happening. It sounds ridiculous, but we can't. <laughs> like and Yeah. You know, like, this is an issue because there's so many things we don't understand, like, about the properties. It's called the source of the earthquake, so we don't know about those source properties and things. So Mm -hmm. I'm basically, the title of my PhD is called Journey to the Centre of the Earthquake, which is after the film. It's very nerdy. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My supervisors were like, yeah, we're going to get a good one with this title. So I'm using lab simulation experiments and basically recreating earthquakes in the lab which sounds complicated but actually it it makes sense because we can't like see what's going on in like nature so we need to kind of simulate them in the lab and I'm measuring the properties of these lab generated earthquakes to better understand them basically
0: amazing I mean I'm not a geophysicist by any means but (laughs) I don't really understand all of that but yeah
1: it sounds incredible (laughs) (laughs) thank you and yeah it's I mean I didn't understand it really until I started doing it that's the thing Like with you might specialise in one area during your undergraduate, but then you, you become an expert in this area during your PhD. And so there's so many things I still don't understand. So <laughs> it's everyone. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. OK, so when did you first consider
1: pursuing a PhD? What led you to that decision? So I guess I started thinking about doing a PhD. During my third year, so during my third year, I did a year abroad. I studied in Canada mm-hmm. at Western University. So it's funny because it's called Western, but it's actually in the east of Canada. It's in I mean, Ontario. <laughs> Classic <laughs> North American <laughs> university name. <laughs> <It's like laughs> so Western University, and basically there, I got to sit in and take a class which was to do with. kind of stuff that I'm doing now which is earthquake seismology Mm -hmm. and basically understanding earthquakes using all kinds of cool methods so I did that course and I really enjoyed it so then when I got back to the UK well just before I got back to the UK I managed to get myself a scholarship to do some research in a lab in Germany uh, which was super cool yeah so The German government funded these internships for US, UK and Canadian students and basically you spent like twelve weeks doing research with a PhD student in Germany. So I did that and I really, really enjoyed it. Like I loved like just the research culture and like kind of become an expert and just like the vibe, just general vibe. So (laughs) so I was like, Yeah, you know, like I feel like this is for me. So I came to fourth year and I was like, Okay, I'll go for a PhD and here I am.
0: And it's great because I think from the interviews I've been doing, we have a whole range, like some people never wanted to do a PhD, some people, you know, it took them a while to understand that that's what they did want to do. And with you, it sounds like you landed on it pretty early on.
1: Yeah it's it's kind of like wild (laughs) so I I kind of thought about it in third year and then but then I didn't really know what a PhD was like I didn't know Mm. that they got funded I didn't know like how the kind of streams work like after that like what happened I didn't know how to get into it until I went on my year abroad in third year so it really took for that kind of exposure to postgraduate students and being in those postgraduate classes for me to really think about pursuing it so I think that's an issue just generally across the UK it's quite like vague and Mm. hard to understand how you can become a PhD which is kind of why like I've been getting involved in like other like organisations and trying to be like visible and vocal about what I do and stuff so
0: yeah and that's really important it's kind of it's almost like you don't know what a PhD is until you're doing it but like we need to know before that yeah ideally (laughs) Okay, so you've told us about kind of what made you interested in the topic, but can you tell us just a little bit more? Like, how do you actually simulate these earthquakes?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, I'm in the Liverpool's Rock Deformation Lab, which is basically like known for doing loads of cool, they're called lab analogue experiments. So it's creating similar like conditions to what happens in the earth but under controlled settings which is what you want mm-hmm. you want to be able to control so you can measure these properties so when you're in the lab it's not like what lots of like wet labs kind of look like it's like a dry lab so it's not like with you know like you see like chemists and biologists do all their yeah. stuff it's more like it looks a bit like a workshop to be fair there's like these big machines that look kind of scary when you look at them and there's like tools on the wall and all kinds of things but basically these machines are called tracks or apparatus and what that means is that they can control pressures in three different directions could try but what that means is that you can basically recreate pressures that are within the earth so for example if you go down towards the earth basically the pressure in the earth increases so as you go down you get more pressure and that kind of squeezes the rock so you want to be able to create those pressures in order to simulate these earthquakes so that they're more like lifelike so that's how they work, and basically, we're, sli- we're sliding different materials within uh, this apparatus and you're sliding mm-hmm. them at speeds that are similar to kind of earth speeds as well. So, you do that. So, basically, you get your sample, you put it in a jacket, you put it in the machine, and then use the machine to control it, control the pressure, control the speed, and then you're measuring these small lab quakes using so. It's, called, it's like acoustics so acoustics you know like sound waves it's the same kind mm-hmm. of thing so it's like waves that we're measuring and we've got like apparatus to measure those waves and that's how it works, I hope that's kind of clear it's, it's quite complicated <laughs> I mean I managed to follow you and I, I really don't
0: know anything yeah. about this so I think you explained it quite well Okay, thanks. but obviously in the episode description there will be a link to your social media so I'm sure if anyone's really interested they can reach out and get an explanation from you
1: yes for sure
0: brilliant okay now you've kind of mentioned you know during your undergrad you did a placement year you did this scholarship in Germany and I know that while you've been doing your PhD you've been involved in those different opportunities
1: mm-hmm.
0: I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about these
1: yeah so I've kind of gotten it like quite stuck into but I guess you can call them co-curricular activities because they're not like they still relate to my PhD. Yeah. But things like training and field trips, like they're slightly different. So, for example, during my first year of my PhD, I kind of got involved in another PhD's work in terms of helping them with field work. So. We went to the Italian Alps to basically ha- help to collect samples. Um, so different rocks. We were looking for different rocks. And we were mm. hiking all in the Alps and everything. So we're looking for these rocks that are basically, if you have a look at them, they contain these kind of like, it's like a glass material. And those basically are they're called but they're like ancient earthquakes so you can figure out when an earthquake happened during the past that you couldn't obviously measure because we didn't have all this equipment that we can measure them with now so we're looking for those and hunting for those so that was a really cool experience to kind of have a, another side to looking at geology mm-hmm. and just like kind of just just to go to Italy because I hadn't been to Italy <laughs> <laughs> so why not you know why not the job yeah yeah And the weather was like 30 degrees it was sunny it was awesome got some gelato it was great um also so I've done quite a bit of training so probably the most notable bit of training I I did was so I went to Sweden to do a course on disaster risk reduction and so this was really cool because it got together like kind of scientists in natural hazards so that's me like an earthquake scientist with it's all PhDs so PhDs working on policy, PhDs working on politics. So kind of the whole spectrum from scientists to politics and all in between mm. and got us together to learn about disaster risk reduction, learn about where the kind of fallouts are. So like miscommunication in terms of science communication um, things like, so we had to work on a project where we had, basically had this problem that we had to solve and we only had like a week to kind of come up with a proposal, a project proposal. Um, No pressure. No pressure. I know, and it was literally (laughs) like, oh my gosh, like I'm like learning all these policy things, and I'm just a complete scientist and I don't know anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I felt amateur, but it was really, it was a great challenge to kind of have and just to communicate with people who have similar interests to you, but you look at things from a different perspective, and that's really kind of rewarding to kind of do. So yeah, I've done quite a few things for my PhD outside of the actual lab stuff. Yeah.
0: And I know you're currently doing an internship with the Royal Society. Yeah. Could you tell me a bit more about your role here and your responsibilities?
1: Yeah. So the policy internship that I'm in is basically, it's it's funded by the UKRI and it's in science policy. So it's a three-month internship working with the Royal Society, which is a learned academy. So it basically means that There's a group of like eminent scientists. They've got all kinds of scientists, like Sir Isaac Newton used to be a fellow, for example. Very fancy. Very (laughs) fancy. I know they have, there's a massive, like, nice building in London that I would have gone to if it weren't for COVID, but hey ho (laughs) (laughs) And basically, what their goal is, is to use science to best inform policy. And it's like, I think their mission is something like science for the good of like the people. So, (laughs) what I'm working on is like using uh, scientific evidence to inform policymakers and help make decisions and recommendations and stuff. So I'm working on a couple of projects. So I work within data and I also work within research and innovation. So with the data team, there's a lot of kind of data that's used in COVID research. Mm -hmm. So at the moment I'm doing, I'm working on this project, which is called Rapid Assessment and Modelling of the Pandemic, which is called RAMP. And it's this program where you've got scientists that don't normally work on COVID or kind of health related studies. They're like mathematicians and stuff, physicists and all kinds of things, but they're doing modeling that's related to COVID. So for example, modeling to figure out like how many classes you can have in a school and how quickly COVID might spread within the school system, like just because you know you're you're in a classroom, for example. So I'm working with them just on a few things, kind of like helping to manage meetings and also facilitating kind of notes and things like that. But also I'm working on like a, another project, which basically is looking at how do we upskill in the UK? Because the government's talking a lot about like levelling up and stuff. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's like regional disparities in like the different skill sets that people have. So of course, yeah. yeah. So it's like looking at how we can upskill in the UK where the skill shortages and surpluses are and how do we get the skills infrastructure in there to like kind of best solve these skill shortages Mm -hmm. so I'm actually started like kind of developing a method for that so that was kind of my doing like getting the method down and then eventually move into more research evidence gathering more research and then publishing the report so I've helped on that as well so I've done a lot of work very broad (laughs) but I really enjoy it it's really good to because you're using your research skills that you get your PhD exactly but it's using like a different kind of it's used in a different way yeah
0: because I think I don't know my perspective of PhDs before mm-hmm. I started one is that it's very you know you sit down you're writing your thesis you're doing research in that way and I think especially in your case it kind of yeah. highlights how many different things you can do like like you said co-curricular activities yeah. it isn't just sitting down yeah. and writing I mean that's a portion of it mm-hmm. but you know, you can get involved in all these different opportunities and learn and grow as a researcher. And I think with the placements you've been doing, they might not be directly related to your PhD, but you're still nurturing and growing those skills and learning. And that is the point of a PhD. It's teaching you to be a researcher. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. A researcher means so many things. There's not one way to be a researcher is what I'm discovering.
0: (laughs) Really, And um, what made you want to do this internship as part of your PhD?
1: Well, I've kind of thought about like the future and thought about like what Mm -hmm. I want to do after my PhD. And I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to stay within academia like afterwards or at least straight away afterwards. So Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, let's just try this out. And also, so when I was 18 and like just not 18 when I was 22 gosh <laughs> <a> bit,
0: <laughs> only four years only
1: four years difference but I just it feels like a humongous jump isn't it from like 18 to 22 Definitely. Yeah. but it's basically at the end of my fourth year of my undergraduate I thought about going into policy then I thought about doing the civil service fast stream and going into science <laughs> and engineering like that stream so I kind of because I wanted to be able to I still I do love science and I love what I do but I want to be able to see, because I think I still see impact in what I'm doing, but I think that sometimes like we kind of stay within our bubble, like quite a lot with our Mm. research. Like we have conferences and we share um, our research there amongst kind of people working in a similar area, but in general like the average everyday person like my parents and like my grandma they don't really know what I'm doing <laughs> yeah. necessarily so like whereas with the Royal Society and kind of policy work you're, you're seeing the tangible kind of evidence-led research and how evidence and research is being used to form decisions and stuff so I I think I just wanted to be able to see research from another perspective and see whether that was more for me because I think some of the like limitations of staying in academia kind of (laughs) of, like made me think "Hmm." (laughs) (laughs) let me think again
0: (laughs) yeah and I think that's another thing I don't know if myth is the right word but yeah I guess I think a lot of people think okay you do a PhD and you're doing it to stay in academia Mm. and loads of people do stay in academia yeah that's my current plan yeah but it's not the only plan. It's not the only route you can take. A PhD can be used in so many different ways. Yeah, And academia is tough. Mm-hmm. So I think it is really important to think about where you want to take your career after the PhD and try and get involved in activities that help you do that.
1: Yeah, because worst case scenario, you, you mean like, I guess it's not the worst case, but even if you do all these things, you decide, decide that academia is for you, you're only... Be getting enhanced by doing all this extra stuff so anyway so exactly. I might as well try it and like I always say like because I don't know what I want to do necessarily but I know what I don't want to do so it's good to find out what you don't want to do so you can rule stuff out
0: yeah and that I think that is important and I think that's undervalued you know agree yeah I agree yeah so as you are in third year and kind of thinking about Careers. Mm-hmm. Have you developed a better idea of what you want to do after your PhD? or are you still a bit
1: unsure? I'm still relatively unsure. Like I, because I'm signed up to like email lists that show like postdocs all the time, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I could do that postdoc. That sounds really cool. <laughs> but um I think I'm still undecided. I think really like I gotta also think about the kind of lifestyle I want as well. Because I'm, mm-hmm. it's not just like kind of the work I think if PhD and if academia was just the work then I think that would be great and I might be more likely to stay but looking at the research landscape the future of science funding and how mm-hmm. you have like this pipeline with like loads it's like a with, you could, or your pyramid you could call it so you got barely any funding for professors on the top and then loads of PhDs and postdocs at the bottom mm-hmm. like it's increasingly competitive and hard to get like a permanent position, and I I feel like I don't want to be moving around like every two years, like at the moment. So yeah. that's the issue at the moment. If they work out funding to get a bit more like long term <laughs> things, <laughs> and maybe. Uh, but at the moment, my head's going towards either policy or sort of related to my work in like risk and modeling and going into insurance <laughs> because those skills that I'm doing and looking at kind of hazards and things they're useful in the insurance industry because they do a lot of modeling catastrophe modeling and designing models to help inform insurance companies as well so that'd be a way to use my skills probably more directly mm. so I have like two roots predominantly in my head like policy or insurance I'm just deciding between the two <laughs> at the moment and you've kind of touched
0: on it but how do you think doing these additional activities has prepared you
1: for whatever your future career may be I think it's it's given me, well, first off, it's given me an idea about what the landscape's like for PhDs and speaking mm-hmm. to people who have PhDs, because most people at the Royal Society have done a PhD okay. afterwards, and some of them have done postdoctoral work. So just hearing from them what they've done, lots of them didn't go straight into policy. Some of them are leaving policy for something else. So just getting that like knowledge of experience has been useful. Like, kind of the confidence as well, like, just because I think... Within my PhD, I'm confident about what I'm doing, like my kind of research and my lab work and things. But I think sometimes I forget that, like, I have other skills. (laughs) If that makes sense. Like, Like, I don't just, you don't just fit into one box. Like, we're multifaceted people. And even though you've decided you want to focus on one thing, it doesn't mean that you're not necessarily good at another thing. Yeah. So, to just finish the interview,
0: what's one piece of advice you would give to other Black people considering pursuing a PhD?
1: so sometimes and quite often you'll be the only black person in the room maybe a person of color in the room like just maybe you're the only woman in the room sometimes <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like for me in my case as a black woman and I would say that while like you know it's it's hard being the first sometimes you have to be the one that does it and if you can be like visual and vocal like while your energy can kind of take it as well so like online kind of if you find your people like for example i found acrc so the african caribbean research collective Mm -hmm. so if you can like find people like that online and connect with them then that's great because that honestly has helped me through my phd so much and through really tough times like last summer with all the like the protests and everything like it was such a hard Mm. like just dark time and people don't get it just the acrc people and black phd students they will get it and they just get you straight away so i would recommend finding your tribe find your group of people and we are here like even though you might not necessarily see us within your research groups we are here so you might just have to look for them a little bit so i recommend getting twitter <laughs> because it's a great place yeah. to connect with other black phd students and you can do it just go for it honestly like you are more than capable like there's a myth of phd is having to be smart and you know we are intelligent but you don't have to be you don't know a star you know blah blah most of the thing is that we're passionate about what we do and we work pretty hard so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah don't like sell yourself short like you can do it definitely so find your tribe and don't sell yourself short yeah although those are two pieces of advice this was one so (laughs) (laughs) well
0: two for one we'll take that
1: brilliant all right thank you so much louisa for joining me today and sharing all of that thank you for having me it's been really fun chatting to you and like this is an amazing project and kudos to you for doing it and just getting all of us involved it's something that is timely it needs to be done and it's good that you're doing it
0: as always for those of you listening at home i'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this episode as someone in the social sciences rather than stem My understanding of lab work up until now was quite limited, so it was great to hear Louisa explain her work. I also really love the idea of calling the additional activities we do during a PhD co-curricular rather than extracurricular. So I'm really interested in hearing what co-curricular opportunities you've been doing alongside your PhD or what activities you would be interested in doing. As always, feel free to tag any comments you make on social media with the hashtag BlackFutureDoctor and please leave a review if you've enjoyed my conversation. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest.